Whether you have a skin interest, a skin query, a skin trauma, or skin disease, I warmly welcome you to Heal Thy Skin, a podcast brought to you by Derm Health Co. I'm Marnie, dermal clinician, dermoscopist, and your podcast host. Skin is deeper than beauty, and our mission is to build the largest platform of specialized practitioners focused on skin health and skin empowerment. Join me each week where we go deep into the skin and beyond to hear stories and education from leading practitioners on a journey of skin health. Welcome to episode number 36 of the Heal Thy Skin podcast. I'm Marnie, your host, and today I'm speaking with Michelle of Lab Muffin Beauty Science. Michelle is a Sydney-based science educator and she holds a PhD in chemistry and she started Lab Muffin Beauty Science about six years ago because she was really frustrated that the beauty blogosphere didn't have enough easy-to-understand explanations of the science behind beauty products. Michelle firmly believes that Absolutely anyone can understand the science between skincare and beauty. And if you can't, it's not your fault. It's the fault of the person that's either doing the talking and sometimes they might even be trying to bamboozle you into believing them marketing gimmicks, you know, we've all heard of them. Michelle is pro-science, healthy skepticism, honesty, transparency, money well spent, chocolate bunnies, chocolate bunnies and sunscreen. Michelle is anti fearmongering, hype, a one size fits all, and detoxing. The 8th of February marks International Day of Women and Girls in Science. So we thought it would be the perfect opportunity to highlight Dr. Michelle Wong. This is a bit of a fun episode as we go through some of the biggest skincare myths going around town and fitting to Lab Muffin Beauty Science, Michelle debunks all of them. Michelle shares how her journey into chemistry inspired the start of Lab Muffin Beauty Science and the importance of using reputable sources when reviewing skincare. I started by asking Michelle what she thought was the biggest misconception about skincare. I think the biggest misconception is probably that there is one product or one routine that will be the best for everyone. And I get lots of questions all the time in my inbox that are just saying, do you think this product will work for me? And there is no other information. And I think skincare is just really personal. I mean, on a physiological level, I guess, different products will work for different people. You have people with different skin conditions, different skin needs. So some people have acne, some people have dry skin, aging. And even on top of that, there's things like people have different budgets, people have different things that are available to them. People have different ethics around which products to buy. And so, yeah, it really depends on what your needs are. Yes, not one choice fits all. It's certainly very individual. So you hold a PhD in chemistry and teach science. What is your earliest memory of interest in science, I guess? I think my earliest memory would be when my mum bought me a book. There was this book called Chemical Chaos. I think this is maybe a very Australian thing, but a very like 90s kid thing. Actually, it's still around Horrible Histories and... Now, the, there was also another like sister series called Horrible Science, and one of them was called Chemical Chaos. 
and it's like a really kid-friendly book. It's full of comics and little like charitable puns and it's just great. So my mum bought me that and they were talking about chemicals and they were showing chemical bonds and so it was like balls and sticks and I just kept on wondering what are the sticks made of? (laughs) (laughs) So I guess that kind of propelled me into chemistry. Yeah, just probing and probing. And I love that even with what you're doing currently, you make science fun. So even from your earliest memory, you've experienced science in a fun way rather than being really overwhelmed and perhaps intimidated when someone is first exposed to it in like a year six science class. So tell us about starting Lab Muffin Beauty Science. So I was doing my PhD, I think, no, it was definitely 2011. And I started research as a PhD student. I didn't really have a big budget. And so I was looking up everything really carefully because I'm also really extra like that. I always just look into tons of reviews before I buy anything. Mm. And as I was looking up products, I just kept coming across information where I just wanted to know more. Like it wasn't well explained or it was, I thought it was a myth and I wasn't entirely sure. So I ended up digging a lot into this. And back in 2011, this information just didn't really exist online. There were like three sites that would say anything halfway useful. There would be peer-reviewed, sometimes people would reference peer-reviewed articles and then I would look them up and then I couldn't find them because they didn't reference them very well. Or they would say something completely different from what they said, They, the paper said. So I ended up digging quite deeply into a lot of these things and I have an awful memory. So what I did was I was like, I will forget all this stuff I found. I need to put it somewhere. And then I was also thinking if I'm interested in this stuff and it's taking me this much effort to find the information as someone who is good at science compared to the general population, other people must also want this. So I started trying to communicate what I found through my blog. Yeah, wow. And it's really expanded over nine years thus far. So coming mm. on a decade. Congratulations yeah. for being on it for so long. Yeah, I, I didn't expect it to last this long, to be honest. <laughs> but it's just, I guess, these things just grow legs. And once mm. it's something that is valuable and people are loving and, I guess, something that you love as well and love sharing, why would you stop it? So what has been a couple of your biggest highlights since starting Lab Muffin Beauty Science? I feel like whenever I publish a post or I publish a video that took a lot of work and I'm really happy with how it came together, I feel like a lot of the time when I start writing a post, I'm not sure if it'll actually work. And then eventually at the end, it comes together. There's just such a sense of satisfaction just hitting that publish button. So I feel like that is really like the emotional highlight. But I guess other like bigger highlights, I really like visiting factories and talking to the scientists who make the products. So one of my biggest highlights was probably visiting Bioderma in France. That was really cool. I got featured in a few magazines as well, which was really nice. I think it's really cool that traditional media is recognizing that there are authoritative sources outside of just magazines. My mum also finally is proud of me. (laughs) I feel like, yeah, as an Asian, my mum's like a typical Asian mother in that she wanted me to be a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant. And she was really nervous about me doing something like that was something she hadn't heard of before. And so I think she was not proud of me for doing a PhD. (laughs) 
wrong kind of doctor. <laughs> but um, now I think one of her friends actually said she found me online and it was really cool. And then, then she started being proud of me. Ah, uh, yes. There's nothing like the appreciation from our parents. It always tops everything, doesn't it? And I also love the reference to just that sense of accomplishment when you press publish and I can imagine it's somewhat like being at uni and finishing that last essay and just saying done and dusted. Now you believe that everyone should understand the science behind skincare and beauty and science you know essentially making science and chemistry fun. Why do you think there is so much misinformation floating around? I think it's because it's just a lot easier to believe misinformation than it is to believe the science behind something. Like the science behind things is usually really complicated. A lot of the time there's lots of numbers and data involved and it seems really cold and it doesn't really have the same emotional appeal to us. So humans Mm. are just really emotional creatures. Like we've evolved in circumstances where making quick decisions based on our gut instinct helped us survive. And so unfortunately, that sort of gut instinct just doesn't really work in our new complicated society with things that have subtle effects. So things like medications, cancer treatment, these things, we just can't really make decisions based on emotion. We need to have better data Like just, you can't trust your gut as to which food will cure your cancer. It just doesn't work that way. So I feel like, yeah, it's just misinformation. A lot of the time it appeals to us emotionally. It appeals to our cognitive biases, the shortcuts that we have in our thinking that we've evolved with. A large part of what I do is just trying to explain the science really well and give the science, like make people understand it and feel like it makes sense. And so it gives the science a bit of a fighting chance against all of the misinformation we're constantly bombarded with. Yeah, makes sense. And even just to teach people about how to think you know, in perhaps a different way that they hadn't thought of before. So even if they don't understand the science behind it, they will at least ask the question, like, is this correct? Yeah, or just even like, even being able to note that there is a trick going on, like a marketing Mm. trick and just an emotion that maybe they feel but they should perhaps not give so much weight to. Yeah, Exactly. Like having some sensation that you want to finish a block of chocolate and then just remembering that that's not best for your health. So you're going to put exactly. it <laughs> So what grinds your gears more, green washing or science washing? I feel like both are bad, but I think science washing actually annoys me more because I feel like people who are using the science usually have more of a scientific knowledge and so they should know better. So I think that's probably why I find it more annoying. I think also science washing, it's easier to fool people about science because it is more complicated. And I guess being a scientist, I also feel like they're sort of misusing my baby. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so I think that's probably why it annoys me a bit more. Yeah, I would just briefly describe what these terms mean and why are they misleading? So greenwashing is when products are marketed to sound like they're more eco-friendly than they are. I think maybe this might become a bigger issue for me because it's getting more popular in the marketplace at the moment. I guess it's always been a big thing. People have always been quite conscious of the environment. But I think with things like climate change and with like the recent very obvious impacts like the bushfires and very bizarre weather, 
I think people are getting a lot more conscious of it. And yeah, I think one of the problems is I think most people want to do the right thing. Most people want to help the environment, help their own health, find products that work. And so based on these like very good motivations that we have, we can get exploited quite easily if something sounds like it will work in these ways. Yeah, so that's what greenwashing is. Science washing is where products use scientific data or what seems like scientific data or scientific concepts to sell themselves without actually being legitimate. So for example, they might use something that sounds scientific, but is actually just nonsense. So could this example be like 95% of users said that they saw a 70% of reduction in wrinkles in 30 days? Yeah, I feel like that's quite standard. I feel like part of it is actually because of the way that cosmetics regulated. So even if a product works really well at a physiological level, they can't say that because then it would push it into drug, into the drug category, and they can't do that. And so a lot of the time, like sometimes the weasel words are very misleading, and most of the time I think they are, but sometimes they're just there to get around these regulatory hurdles that were put in before when people assumed that skin was just dead. Yes. For example, nourishing rather than hydrating, because hydrating would give allusion to the fact that it is actually having a physiological difference on the skin, Mm, right? Yeah. So to shift gears a little, I'd like to go through some kind of rapid fire questions. Mm -hmm. You are known as a deep myth buster. Mm -hmm. uh, And I'd really like to just unpack some of these bigger skincare myths and the science behind them. Okay. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah. <laughs> so does drinking more water improve your skin? If you were drinking not very much to begin with, then maybe. If you were already drinking a normal amount, probably not. Sometimes drinking more water does improve your health in general because instead of eating terrible food, you feel fuller from drinking the water. So the water specifically, maybe not, but what the water is pushing out of the rest of your life, maybe that helps. Mm, Good answer. Should we avoid parabens? If you're allergic to parabens, definitely. For health reasons, in terms of the long-term effects of parabens, probably not. It's really hard to make any sort of like straight up, this will never be found to be toxic statement. Science is always changing. There are always things that could develop. But with the evidence so far, it seems extremely unlikely that the amounts of parabens found in beauty products will have any impact on your health. Yeah, and then this comes back to greenwashing too, right? Mm, Definitely. And it's probably a little bit of a link of science washing and greenwashing put together. Yes. So coming further onto that, are natural beauty products better? Generally, no. (laughs) It's really hard to make any sort of blanket statement about natural beauty products versus more synthetic beauty products. I think there is this general feeling that natural beauty products might be better for your health, better for the environment, safer. All of these are just not a blanket true or false. Mm -hmm. It depends on the individual product, what ingredients are in there. So for example, in terms of whether or not they're more eco-friendly, a lot of the time making a natural beauty product, making the ingredients in it requires tons and tons of resources. Things like fertilizer, irrigation water, transporting it around, whereas the synthetic version is actually more sustainable from life cycle sense. So yeah, there is no blanket statement either way. 
Interesting. And you do have information about natural beauty products, you know, are they better or not on your blog? Yeah. But coming from an environmental perspective, have you also got information on your blog about that? Because that's kind of an angle that I haven't heard many people talk about. I personally have a little bit on it. I'm not that confident with my environmental science things. Generally, I fall who are good at that. And there's a few influencers online who are very, very good with the science behind mm-hmm. environmentally friendly beauty products. So a couple are the EcoWell. She is a consultant on eco-friendly products and she's very, very science-based. And another one is a PhD student who's doing a PhD on waste called Waste Free PhD. And she talks a lot about all the nitty gritty behind assessing whether things are good for the environment. Amazing. And I'll make sure that we link those in the show notes as well for anyone that would like to have a little bit more of a look. So there's been some, you see a lot of this on social media. Does unscreen harm our coral reefs? With the evidence, there is currently no evidence that it has ever harmed an actual coral reef. And it's extremely unlikely that it's making any sort of impact compared with the biggest things that we know are definitely harming the coral reefs, which are climate change. So, for example, increasing sea temperatures and land management. So things like agricultural runoff, so fertilizers from farms, pesticides from farms going into the water. So it looks like sunscreen is just like the tiniest issue. There is an argument that having the sunscreen there might make it worse for the coral reefs, like make them less able to sustain themselves against these bigger onslaughts. But I don't think it's a very convincing argument. The amount of sunscreen in the oceans is minuscule. Unless you are slathered in sunscreen and swimming right next to a coral reef, which will happen if you're, for example, visiting the reef and diving and looking at it, then I don't think you need to worry about which sunscreen to choose. And thinking about it, it's like we probably need to focus on the bigger issue of plastic and there being like these huge floating islands of plastic around the planet as opposed to the small amounts of sunscreen that might be coming Mm. from our skin. Mm. And just climate change and, yeah, fertilisers. I think one of the arguments that I've heard a lot of reef scientists say is that sunscreens are a very simple issue for the government to regulate. All they have to do is say this sunscreen is banned and then the cosmetic brands have to deal with it. Whereas things like climate change and land management, that's a lot more work for the government to do. And Mm. so for the government to just act on sunscreen, it's a very easy win for them. And so that's why they focus so much on it. And that's why a lot of the media have government connections and industry interests. And so they also push this. And so that's why we hear so much about it. Yeah, right. And is it something that do you think is going to happen in the foreseeable future? The sunscreen ban in Australia? Yeah. I feel like there is enough of a public interest in preventing skin cancer that I think it will be quite unlikely, except perhaps right next to the, like in the Great Barrier Reef or something. Yeah, because separately they're two huge issues for Australians, right? Yeah. Yeah. So when it comes to molecular size, often Mm -hmm. it's said that the smaller uh, the molecular size, the better the penetration. Mm -hmm. When is molecular size important when you're actually layering skincare? With layering, molecular size isn't that important. In general, very, very generally, if it's a smaller molecular size, it is probably an ingredient that needs to go through the skin so or go into the skin, like some sort of active. 
And in general, very, very generally, if it's a larger molecular size, it's probably an ingredient that will sit on top of skin. And so maybe applying the smaller ones closer to your skin might be a little bit better. But in reality, if you have properly formulated products, they will be formulated to optimize delivery anyway. So generally just don't worry about molecular size, just put the more active ingredients close to your skin, put your moisturizers on top. Easy. Keep skincare simple. Yeah. Now this question has come up in regards to sunscreen, but also Mm -hmm. just in general types of ingredients in our skincare. There's some stats saying that 60% of what we apply to our skin actually absorbs into our bloodstream. Is this true? Not at all. So firstly, whatever absorbs into your bloodstream through your skin, it depends on the individual ingredient. If it is a smaller ingredient, it tends to go through much more easily. If it's larger, it tends to not go through. It also depends on the properties of that particular molecule. So sometimes they are, they're charged in a way that makes it easier or harder to go through the skin. And it depends on what sort of product it's in as well. So that's why cosmetic formulators and drug formulators spend so much time working on delivery systems because what that molecule is surrounded by can help it penetrate or prevent it from penetrating. With sunscreens, there's been a lot of talk about it because of a couple of recent FDA studies which found that sunscreens are absorbed into the bloodstream. If you look at the study and if you look at their results and then try to calculate what percentage actually absorbed, it is really, really low. So even of one of the most penetrating ones, I believe it's calculated to be about 0.012% that absorbs. There might be an extra zero in there. So well below 1% absorbs. And regarding sunscreen, it's important to note that all of these studies, while they found that there was some absorption into the bloodstream, they all indicated that you still need to wear sunscreen that this shouldn't deter you from wearing sunscreen because the risk of skin cancer is greater. Yeah, the risk of skin cancer is like extremely, extremely well supported, whereas all of the risks of sunscreen having hormonal changes, these are all very theoretical. And Mm -hmm. the fact that we've been using some of these sunscreens for decades and decades without seeing a massive issue is a really good sign. Now, at Dome House Co, we're about skin health and sometimes skin care and skin health is a little bit blurred because Mm. when we're talking about skin, people assume that we're just talking about the face and we're talking about aesthetics. Where skin health, you know, it's our whole body. And if for some reason it is out of alignment or impaired, then we can have all kinds of issues, especially when we're talking about older individuals or those with some kind of immune disorder. Is skincare better the more active it is? I guess what I'm trying to allude to, and I know you've talked about why skincare isn't just about actives, but can you kind of bring it from a science perspective about just what do we need to do to actually just look after our skin health? Not so much about, you know, wrinkles and and the aesthetic side of it, but mm. skin health in general. I think it depends on what your skin condition is. So for example, if you have if you have pretty normal skin, there's very little you have to do. If your skin is normal and the only problems are things like wrinkles, which are completely natural then to look after your health, the health of your skin, all you really need to do is help it along. So protect it from things like sunlight, from hot water during winter. So generally, 
leaving it alone is usually a good step if your skin's normal. If you have acne or if you have eczema or any of these sorts of related conditions, then in that case, you might need a few active ingredients. But I think there's a tendency for people to do too much to their skin and a tendency for people to look at their skin and see all the flaws. If you look into the mirror way too close, your skin will not look like what it looks like on, in a magazine or on Instagram. And I think that's one of the big issues. People see their skin, they see pores, which are completely normal, and then decide that that's a problem. And then they start loading up on actives. And then that's where they start giving them their skin problems. So they use too much stuff, they compromise their skin barrier, and then they end up with irritation, sensitivity. Yeah, so I think that is a big issue. And even just coming back to your first, at the first question about some of the biggest misconceptions in skincare is that someone thinks that what is good for their best friend or their mum or their auntie or their sister is going to be good for them. And that's just simply not the case. Yeah. Wow. So we've got through the rapid fire questions, lots and lots of (laughs) debunked. For those at home that may have a skin interest but not necessarily have a science background, what are some pieces of advice that you would suggest to them when reviewing a product or a treatment? I think um, when reviewing, be really careful not to take the marketing at face value. So sometimes there are numbers that are very, they look very convincing, but there will often be weasel words in there. So things like, like you said before, 90% of users saw felt like they saw a 70% improvement in their skin. So things like that, just you can, after you've seen a few products with this sort of stuff on it, it becomes pretty obvious that they're like really wiggling their way through to get the biggest numbers possible. Also, I guess, don't try too hard to explain something. So if you don't understand it, just don't bother explaining it. I think the most important thing in reviews is really just your personal experience. And I think having that information for other people to see is in itself valuable. You don't have to explain how every single active ingredient in a product works. You don't have to memorize what the person who sold you the product or the treatment told you in terms of the mechanism. I think people try to complicate things sometimes. Mm. And yeah, just knowing how something worked for you is already going to be very good information. I guess another thing would be a more expensive thing is not necessarily better. Mm. There is this sort of idea that you get what you pay for, which is true in a lot of areas of life, but in skincare, it is not so true. (laughs) Skincare ingredients themselves are generally not that expensive. Most of the money goes into other things other than the actual ingredients in a product, things like marketing, distribution. And so you can get very, very good products for budget prices, you can get very, very awful products at very high prices. Excellent point. And I know you've got lots of information about that on your blog too. So what is next for Lab Muffin Beauty Science? I'm starting to write a book on more advanced skincare. So I've had a lot of people ask me about how to choose active ingredients and how to choose products. And I feel like I'm finally ready to write that. So I have a book already, which is on the basic skincare routine, things like sunscreen, moisturizer, cleanser, how to choose those, because I feel like those basic products are actually probably the most important ones to get right, Yeah. because they're the ones doing most of the heavy lifting. 
I feel like, yeah, again, people focus on actors, but those are important. But I do want to talk a bit about actors as well. So I'm working on that. I think this year I'm trying to do a little bit more video content and um, a few more really long form blog posts. So, yeah, lots more content, I guess. Cool. And for anyone that hasn't watched any of Michelle's videos, I highly recommend that you do so. Something that I love is the progression of your awesome hair colours. <laughs> and I know you have been creative. And also just the props that you use and the way that you explain things is so easy because you put it in layman's terms, but still you sound like it's expansive and covering all bases as well. So where can people find more about you and the work that you're doing? So my website is labmuffin.com. I have an Instagram account at labmuffinbeautyscience where I debunk lots of myths. And my YouTube channel is labmuffinbeautyscience, four words, Amazing. Well, thank you so much for meeting with me this morning, Michelle. It was awesome to have you. Thanks so much. What a great interview. Isn't Michelle just the best? Michelle debunked some of the biggest myths going around and gave some easy to apply tips to ensure you don't get duped when looking for skincare. The three deeper than skin insights that stood out to me were number one, when putting together these questions for Michelle, it made me reflect on all the crazy things that are shared in the media that are just downright not true. Um, And it's really just a message to be really careful and watch out for these marketing gimmicks and be more aware of what is actually happening in the industry because unfortunately there's not much regulation as to uh, what things people can say. However, it is important to note if someone is making a claim that a skincare range or something is actually making a physiological change to the skin or a cellular change to the skin, it does actually need to be uh, gone through the TGA. So if something is saying that it is actually going to either cure some kind of condition and you know you might be picking it up from a local market, then it's pretty sure that whatever it is, is making really unrealistic and untruthful claims. And if they were caught, they would probably get in a lot of trouble. So just be more aware of that. Number two, I loved hearing Michelle's journey into science and how she pursued her passion since an early age, despite her discerning mum. And I think the message here is if you love something, then go for it. And sure, it may be difficult. You might cop some slack from these around you, but persistence and hard work pays off. And there is something really special about pursuing your dreams. And it was so awesome to hear that finally Michelle's mum is super proud of what she's doing, which is awesome. And number three, out of any blog that I know, Michelle has probably the most comprehensive publicly available policies about her site, her videos and the information that she shares. I urge you to go have a look because I think you would agree with me that out of so many bloggers out there, uh, Michelle's honesty and transparency just makes her one of the best beauty bloggers out there for this particular reason. I'd really love to hear if you've been 
duped by a skincare product. So share your experiences with us by sending them to info at dermhealth.co or tagging us in social media at dermhealth.co. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Until next time, stay skin powered.